been online, especially on Twitter, then you probably know the name Ellie Valley, or at the very least his brushy drawings that use the grotesque and absurd to make larger points about life, culture, and politics. He's been creating art for over a decade, but it wasn't until the Trump administration that he was propelled into the public spotlight after he was attacked by a wide range of politicians, particularly Republicans and right-wing figures, including Meghan McCain, who even called the comic he drew of her as one of the most anti-Semitic things I've ever seen. In case you need a reminder, McCain is not Jewish, and well, Valley actually is, and is very much connected to his local Jewish community. Back in 2019, in response to many of these controversies, Valley told Vice News, My comics are not intended to try to convince the other side. What my comics are trying to do is galvanize our side and to remind our side that we are not, we are not the evil ones. I'm Hudag Vartanian, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. In this conversation, I asked Valley to tell us about how he got his start and discuss his career that builds on the long history of satire and graphic humor in the art world. Valley is a master of the medium, and I hope this interview will illuminate more about his life and work. Let's get started. This episode, I've been wanting to do this for quite a while. We have uh, Ellie Valley. World-renowned comic artist and uh, provocateur at times, it seems. Would that be accurate? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but so not for its own sake. Not for its own sake. Yeah. Definitely not. So, I was doing some research about Ellie Valley. For those of you who would know his work, I mean, I think you know, no stranger to his presence online. His during the Trump years, there were so many many controversies that seem to arise from your drawings. In 2019, uh, New York Magazine, an article by Abraham Reisman called you, the title called you the angriest political cartoonist in America. What did you think about that title that was bestowed uh, on you? I mean, I don't consider myself angry predominantly, but it, I, I, you know, didn't uh, take offense to it. You know? Yeah, well, I think I think it sort of captured maybe that moment because I think we were all angry, to be fair. So <laughs> during during 2019, so yeah, you know, yeah. maybe you were capturing the zeitgeist at the time. So those of you who may not know Valley's work, A Diaspora Boy was a publication that came out in 2017, which I think is probably the gr best introduction to your work. Would you agree? Yes, certainly to my work uh, prior to the Trump years. Okay, prior yeah. to, your, to the yeah. Trump years. Okay, so I wanted to get him in here so we can talk about being a politically engaged artist, being, uh, a, frankly, a master comic artist, as well as somebody who's been very engaged with these issues. And unlike a lot of people that sort of like recede into like, oh, people are attacking me. And I mean, I've even done it to a certain degree where you get so much hate after a while you're like, do I withdraw? I'm always impressed with how much you're still out there, regardless <laughs> of what you get. So this podcast, we're going to delve a little bit into your world, a little bit into your background, into your thoughts, and also hopefully get some tips on how to weather these types of storms. Sure. So, okay, let's start. Ellie, yes. where were you born? What, what is your origin story? Well, I was born in Rhode Island, but I quickly moved. My parents moved to upstate New York when I was little. And then my, when my parents got divorced, I uh, moved to South Jersey with my family, with my mom and my sister. That's my origin story, I mean, in terms of geography. <laughs> it's not bad for a superhero, uh -huh. no. Uh -huh. 
<laughs> You're like a comic book superhero sometimes, I tell you, especially for those of us who follow you on, on Twitter. So from what I understand, and those of uh, us who have read Diaspora Boy, you know, there you talk a little bit about growing up in a Jewish American community, being a part of the different institutions that have been part of that, whether it's Hebrew school and and the different organizations, mm -hmm. fundraising, summer camp, summer camp, and all those. Mm -hmm. Now, why don't you give us a little bit of a I don't know a sense of what that was like? You know, I mean, uh, there are a lot of communities. You know, as someone in the Armenian community, I, I definitely relate to a lot of what you said. But I'd love people to get a little bit of the flavor. Like, what was that like going to a Jewish summer camp, and what what are the types of things that you sort of noticed that now, in retrospect, you've been thinking a lot about? For instance, um, okay. I mean, obviously, I can't give a single sentence about an entire <laughs> uh, climate, childhood, institutions, etc. But um, fair. But but I will say that you know, in terms of what's recently been happening uh, in the Middle East, you never realize the degree of just innate, you know, one could say propaganda, one could say uh, pedagogical uh, direction, <laughs> which is a very benign way of saying it. That. Every American Jew is subjected to and imbibes from birth to death, you know? Mm -hmm. Every synagogue, in my experience, has an Israeli flag and, a, and an American flag, which is, you know, I don't think there should be any flags in, in any uh, house of worship, you know, but let alone uh, an Israeli flag. You know, Israel is taught as, as you know, our homeland, and the, the myths, uh, both politically and ideologically, are... Uh, ubiquitous, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that, uh, you know, we, so to speak, uh, literally say they say we, we say we. I should say, made the desert bloom. You know, it was an empty, empty place that Jews um, came to. But also, you know, th th I mean, that's the political aspect, but also the ideological and, and philosophical aspects of you know Israel being the heightened state for all Jews everywhere in the world. I mean, to, to make Aliyah, I mean, literally Aliyah means to go up, and, and your, your deem is the term for uh, Israelis who leave the country, which means going down, technically. Right, so Aliyah is, is when people, when Jews migrate to Israel, for yeah. those people who don't know. Yeah, that's yep. the term that is used for those who move to Israel. Earlier, you know, in, in religious tradition, it's a term when you're called to the Torah, and so it just shows, like, the, the intensity of the vernacular. Um, and so, you know, all aspects of our upbringing are suffused with, with Israel at the core. But you grew up pretty progressive. Would you, yeah. would you characterize it that way? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, progressive influence, yes. I mean, I wasn't, influence. you know, um, mailing pipe bombs to uh, senators at the age of seven, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd call that progressive. No, that's true. But... <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I wasn't political at all at, at, at a young age, you know? Yeah, you're so. pulling out your satirical bone. Mm. I get it. I get mm. it. Um, so, okay. But now was that something, reading that introduction to Diaspora Boy, it gets a sense that your family had this sort of irreverent take sometimes yes, that's on true. their own identities. Yes. Is that correct? Well, yes. I mean, but, uh, you know, as I say in Diaspora Boy, my parents got divorced when I was five, mm -hmm. and my mom has a, a reverent and also social justice-inclined um, direction and attitude. And my father was irreverent as well, um, but he was much more, you know, he's progressive on American politics, but right-wing on Israel, as many American Jews are. Right. Especially of his generation. Right. So, but I, I did grow up with that kind of um, you know, irreverence, you could say. And... One thing we both share is we have uh, genocide survivors in our family trees. Is that correct in your case? Yes, but not um, direct. Okay. Um, you know, both my parents 
parents, um, in fact, my mom's case, grandparents uh, came here prior to uh, the horrors of uh, 20th century, mid 20th century. So, out of curiosity, when it came came to the something like the Holocaust, how did you understand that in terms of your family? Like, was that part of your upbringing? Was it part of the sort of the education around social justice? I mean. Love to get a little bit of sense of of what that meant for you in terms of the education around social justice. Yeah, um, not necessarily directly because again, social justice was like sort of informal education for my mom kind of thing. Although in Jewish day school, yes, Israel and the Holocaust were uh, two cores of our identity and you know the structures of how we were taught. And I do remember an art class, and this apparently wasn't that uncommon, drawing uh, scenes from the Holocaust. Uh, I, I would need to really go through like hip, hypnosis therapy to, to remember exactly what I was drawing. I do remember once drawing a guy being chased in the woods. Um, so we might have been drawing partisans as well. I can't remember if we actually drew um, gas chambers. Um, I, I don't remember right now. Well, I'll tell you, in Armenian Saturday School in Toronto, we were also drawing. So I don't think this is so uncommon. I think communities drawing, drawing uh, genocide, genocide really? okay. scenes and stuff. So I, I do think like maybe there was sort of a period where people were really confused of how to teach this too. I, I just, you know, I sort of want to put it out there because mm. I think it's a very complicated question for sure. Mm. Okay. First time you remember drawing. First time you remember art, the lure of art in your life. Well, I actually found some um, old drawings of my kitchen growing up at the age of 10. I think I drew better then than I do now. <laughs> so, uh, I think they faded a bit. So the, the black lines uh, are really black and the other lines are like sort of a, the opacity is down just because of fading off on this, um, not newsprint, but, you know, like uh, drafting paper. And there were scenes around the, around the house and I, I like those. I don't, I don't know when I first started drawing. I was drawing comics at an earliest age. I, I was drawing my own comic, I think called... I don't know, weirdo or something. I mean, there's the crumb weirdo. So I didn't even know about that at the time, but it was some kind of, it, it was actually influenced by Plop, which was this DC oh. thing, which was, um, I think, partly reprints of earlier, you know, mad uh, slash cracked type things. It didn't have as good a um, uh, reception as some of the earlier ones, but actually Basil Wolverton, either uh, original art or in reproductions, uh, illustrated the covers. And he was a, you know, direct influence, definitely. But also uh, in summer camp, I used to draw and I have some of those still, too. Uh, my uh, camper mates. We'd be sitting out, <laughs> nice. and I would draw them in pencil. Which camp did you go to? I went to Ramah in the Poconos. Oh, okay. okay. Do you know Ramah? It's a, I've heard of it. A conservative, um, I mean, USY, I th- I'm well, USY, the conservative synagogue movement. So uh, I'm pretty sure, I, but don't quote me on that. But it, it, it definitely also had a, a Zionist background like you know when you're playing baseball and you're out it's yotze which means out or i I don't know if it's actually the term used in in baseball in israel but it it means like get out so it's it was so those kinds of things you know hebrew suffused uh all all aspects no but of of camp in particular i was trying to i'm trying to remember the you know the place for eating the the um you know cafeteria things like that uh they all had hebrew names and stuff got it no yiddish that's right so then you went to cornell Yes. And what was the, your college experience like? Cornell, actually, I actually don't like to talk about Cornell. It was, it was the worst years of my life. And so, wow. Yeah. So uh, Okay. So, we'll fast I mean, forward. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Unless you want to linger I, on anything. No, I, I don't even talk. It's so funny. You know, the, the joke is people who went to Cornell like to brag about it. I don't let anyone know I went there because it's so embarrassing. And when I found out people, you know. Wait. Okay. So, I have to ask you why. Um... You know, it's come on. It's, it's just it's just you and me. No one else. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a long story. But first of all, I uh, had an injury a week before college started, and so I went up there on crutches. Going to Cornell on crutches is a, uh, you know, it's it's not it's not a fun experience. I was I was in a suite with, you know, kind of Lord of the Flies type people who uh-huh. who actually preyed on my physical 
um, handicap. I mean, I was wow. I was on crutches, and and they were just mean people. And the the larger issue was Cornell. Um, the people I met there were predominantly from a wealthier background and uh, class. I, yeah, there's there were definitely a lot of class issues there that made me feel um, alienated. And um, and I never. Uh, I mean, I, I eventually made friends and I and got along okay, but. I always associate it with um, the darkest periods. Um, <laughs> Did you ever face anti-Semitism there? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, not, not like directly. It's funny because Cornell has a very strong, uh, large Jewish population. But for some reason, I ended up freshman year with <laughs> just like the entire floor was not Jewish. And um, I don't know if that inspired. I mean, you know, one one guy was like this... Um, this track guy from New Mexico, he, he would talk about, you know, the, the, the hats that Jews wear and stuff and like li- little comments here and there. But it was never like, you know, you fucking, you know, K-word kind of got thing. It, got it. Um, but, but I do think I was an outsider, which is weird. Cornell, you know, in the Northeast, right. Jewish Northeast. Basically, when I was there, it's not like that anymore. But when I was there, um, there was the West Campus and North Campus. West Campus was known for more social, probably partyish as well. North Campus was more quiet and maybe withdrawn, etc. I think now they force everyone to go on North Campus as freshmen. I'm not sure though, but I think they they sort of um, tried to correct for what was going on when I was there. And when I was there, I ended up on North Campus, and so that was already alienating a little bit. Being on a floor with just like this random <laughs> assortment of people that I wasn't really clicking with was another thing. And going there in crutches and miss, oh, I missed the entire orientation too because I was in the hospital. <laughs> Oh, I got it. Okay. Yeah. So now... But I will say this, okay. if, you, if I may. Please. Because I know you want to talk about Prague. Yes. Right? I want to talk about Prague okay. after that. Yep. Well, I will say it all comes together because I, I never really talk about this, but what the hell. Just briefly, uh, I was working at a, at a day camp summer after um, graduating high school. A Jewish uh, day camp, actually. And um, I sustained an injury at the camp on the bus, basically. Long story, I don't need to get into the details of that, but basically it was a workers' compensation uh, thing. Oh, wow. And and the suit was settled when I finished uh, Cornell. And without that money, I never would have been able to go to Prague. I mean, oh, wow. it really okay. it really is it, it really opens up your understanding of privilege in America. I mean, right. my student loans alone would have kept me and, and and the kind of job I would have been able to get, I would have been I would have been really in a in a very bad state, you know, financially and emotionally had I not and by the way, it wasn't like it wasn't so extravagant that I could, you know, retire of for course. life, but it yeah. was enough to be able to pay off my loans, p- pay for a plane ticket, and pay for my rent in the wow. beginning of Prague before I started um, doing some other things. There. So I, I wanted to bring up Prague because when I was reading, uh, doing research for this, there was one article that mentions you moved to Prague, and then because you had some workable Hebrew and sort of, you know, I guess needed a job, you ended up being a tour guide yes. to groups both from Israel and other tour groups mm-hmm. as well, as well as Jewish Americans. Yeah. And all these types of things. Tell us a little bit about that experience. And, you know, part of the questions I'm asking is also to understand how your thinking on this issue evolved. When I say this issue, I mean about art, I mean about identity, I mean about like politics in general. Well, I mean, from the Jewish perspective, when I was in Prague, you know, because First of all, you know my, my dad's a rabbi. You didn't mention that, but that is oh, that's sort right. of yes. subtext. Seems it's, it's, yeah. it's important to yeah. mention, yes. So, um, but my my uh, experience in American in the American Jewish community um, was uh, you sort of I took everything for granted, you know, and and when I was in Prague, becoming friends with uh, the local Jewish community, and um, you know, in the years following communism, I. Uh, I, I just met people who who looked upon Judaism and Jewish community in a far different way than what I had experienced. And also, when I would meet these tourists coming from all over the world, 
I would uh, I would sort of see it you know every day through their eyes which was also like eye-opening for me so it, ga mm. it gave me a it, it you know the, my haters would would be you know shocked because they say that I'm a you know an anti-semite but it actually gave me uh, <laughs> a, a greater appreciation for the treasure of Jewish tradition especially of course in the diaspora and but also I will say that most of my American tourists came to Prague assuming it was a graveyard because of our uh, Israel slash Holocaust uh, identity bifurcation upbringing and so they just expected to see only sites of horror and devastation, both graveyards from the past and also devastation from the war period. And although, you know, the Holocaust, uh, Prague was not exempted from the Holocaust, you know, the, mm -hmm. there's a synagogue, the Pinka synagogue with names of uh, like close to 80,000 Jews who were murdered. Um, but I, I would need to check the, the numbers. I don't want to. Uh, I, I get it. I think but, people understand okay, sort so, of ballpark. Yeah, so... Because um, the numbers are always horrific as it is. Yeah, so I don't think yeah. we have to play that game of how many exactly were... Um, but, um, so I'm not, I'm not saying that the, the, the Holocaust <laughs> didn't happen in Prague. What I'm saying is that people come there expecting uh, only devastation. And then when you open their eyes to, for instance, the oldest continuously used synagogue in all of Europe, the Alt Neuschul, um, where, you know, the, the most famous uh, golem legend uh, right. occurs there. And um, uh, golem, for those who don't know, of course, is sort of a spirit, a spirit creature or something in Yiddish tradition. How would you characterize the golem? I wouldn't say um, spirit creature as much as just a, a humanoid made of clay. Oh, right. That's uh, it. That's or mud it. or, apologize. you know, You're it doesn't right. have to be clay or mud. I actually, you know, I wrote a book about. Yeah, that's uh, right. There, there were ones that were actually made of wood, too, early on. Right. But um, it's actually one of the differences between a golem and a human being is the capacity for speech, because that is right. supposed to be the thing that is that carries the human the human that's spirit right. and conscience. And no, in early cinema, it looks very ghost-like, the way they oh, sort of represent it. Oh, that's okay. why maybe that's why I'm thinking ghost-like. That makes sense. Yeah. Or Dibuk. Sometimes people confuse Dibuk and, uh, and Gold. But anyway... Um, I do it every day. I admit <laughs> it. I admit it. So, you know, like, and also for various reasons, there, there were streets, even though the entire former Jewish quarter had a renovation in the early 20th century, there were still so many synagogues that existed, plus the, uh, of course, the old Jewish cemetery in Yosifov, that, that district. It really... It opened up um, travelers' eyes, but also my own eyes, to um, to the richness of uh, Jewish history that I had maybe taken for granted when I was living in America. So, okay. So, you spent how long in Prague? Five years. Five years. And then you came back. Yeah. What brought you back? Well, I finished this uh, travel book, and I realized, because um, I was also writing fiction there. So, do I you want to mention the travel book? Oh, <laughs> well, I don't make a penny off it, but <laughs> I, I wish I did. But it's, you know, it was a bad situation with the publisher, of course. But it's called The Great Jewish Cities of Central and Eastern Europe. I don't even know if it's still in print. I would meant to, like, just scan it in and throw it online, but it just it takes time to do that, too. Of course. I think you can get it used, um, or a lot of it is on Google Books, actually, if you can check it out. Good idea. Of course, all of the current information needs to be updated, but all, all the historical stuff is still, you know, good stuff. So you and finished the book? Yeah, and so um, I realized that my connections to American culture were becoming atten attenuated. I was, uh, you know, I was really, I was living in Prague, all my friends were Czech, and basically I was, I was, at, this, I was at this precipice where... If I were to continue living there, my the fiction that I was working on would would basically be you know emigrant fiction sort of you know right. I, I was no longer I was no longer comfortable with I mean I was comfortable but I mean I, I was just feeling the tendrils disappear from mm. from my consciousness of American culture you know mm. and this is beginnings of the internet basically you know this is um, later late nineties right so it wasn't as easy to stay connected 
Um, and even if you're connected, I mean, I think even today, you know, if, if you're if you're in another country all the time, it doesn't matter how many newspaper articles you're reading uh, from America, you're still imbibing the local culture, and that's mm-hmm. that's what that's what is ins- you know inspiring you, you know, however you interpret inspiring. So so I knew that if I was going to stay, then because basically my check was um, conversational, it wasn't enough to. I mean, it was conversational. I, I you know I, I got by. But um, you weren't going to start writing in it. No, I wasn't going to start writing it. But also like this. I mean, examples are you know the most salient examples for me were when people would make references to uh, Russian cartoons from their childhood. Right. I didn't know those things, yeah. and and it would always be a stumbling block. And I knew that I could, you know, uh, cross that boundary with a, a huge amount of work and just be you know becoming a um, a check in every sense of the culture, you know, of the word, you know. But I didn't want to. Uh, I, I love Czech, but I but I also was missing the my American roots, and so mm. and I wanted to continue working on fiction, and so it's like I, I needed to go to um, <laughs> my own homeland, which was America. So so would you say your work is in the American tradition? Do you find that your work fits most in that tradition? Yes. I mean, obviously, right now I'm doing these are political comics, and when I was coming back from Prague, I didn't actually expect to be doing uh, political comics. So Got I was it. I was thinking I would be doing uh, fiction, and, and you know. And so your first comics, where were they published? Um, my first comics in general, in life, in life, <laughs> was that in Cornell? Yeah, I, I did some work at Cornell, but um, but also like you know fifth grade, I did uh, you know Five Alive. Uh, but did it get published? Well, it was it was a mimeograph, you know. Whatever. Oh, okay. It was okay. So yes. fifth grade. So yes, so, yes. I, can, I count that. You're you're um, you're DIYing it in fifth grade. <laughs> yeah, I Sam, love it. It was Sami's that. <laughs> so so I there's the fifth grade stuff. I did stuff at Cornell, and then when I came to Prague, originally I was trying to get uh, some kind of gig with uh, either Prague Post or Prognosis. These two the English, English language. language, right? Yeah, it never it didn't quite work out. I did maybe one thing for them. I still have a picture of Havel that I did of Metjar, who was the head of uh, Slovakia at the time. And, and I was pitching here and there, but it never really worked out. And honestly, my, my feeling at the time was I was a fiction writer. And, and it's like, how am I going to have my day job be as unstable financially as, the, <laughs> as my you know, uh, passion job? So why am I doing this cartooning when I should just put it all into the fiction and you know, not, not worry as much about the cartooning anymore? And, I, and again, it's like drawing Havel for the Prague Post isn't, you know, that's, it's such a cultural impersonation you know i'm i'm an american in prague for three weeks i'm gonna start drawing hovel you know it's it's it's, it's absurd i, I wasn't a, i should say that the hovel drawing was just a, a portrait it was not a cartoon on his you know post-soviet um right. uh, politics you that's know, right yeah, exactly so okay so now you come back to the u.s and so we're talking early aughts around 2000 when when is roughly this? roughly yeah roughly um, okay yeah so what do you do? You touch ground, and you're like, what do you start doing then? Well, I was actually um, editing the travel book for six months. And then after that, I, you know, I had all these temp jobs in New York. I worked... Uh, so you came back to New York? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I'm trying to remember now, like, a whole array of temp, including CBS News once I was, like, answering phones one time. Literally, Dan Rather calls, and I'm like, who? Who is this? He's like, Dan, I work here. That kind of thing. That, so uh, I was just, like, you know, just trying to get by, et cetera. Uh, but it sounds again, like the perfect transition job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, New York Magazine is a fact checker for maybe, you know, six weeks or so. I think I have, like, one little thing in, in one of their issues, one of their, like, retrospective issues, you Got know, it. looking back Got at it. the past, previous 20 years or so. And, oh, you know, this is funny, though. I mean, everything, 
the only way to make it in this fucking country or in this world is through who you know. And right. the only person I knew was my rabbinical father. And so he actually tried to get me a job at the ADL, of all places. <laughs> the Anti-Defamation yeah, League? Yeah. Um, that, <laughs> Sorry, I'm just laughing, knowing the more con- re- recent comics right. no, you've exactly. drawn. And Foxman uh, must have been there at the time. A, a Foxman, who, of course, is the head of the ADL yeah. and has been forever. Well, since. no, he's not anymore. Oh, right, he, he's he, not. He, okay, sorry. Yeah, now I it's apologize. Jonathan Greenblatt. That's right. But was no, the but, head of the New England ADL for a while, wasn't he? No, remember. he had the head of the New England ADL fired for that acknowledging the Armenian genocide. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Ah, that's where I remember the name from. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute, there was a New England connection. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. got it. Go ahead. Anyway, so, but but it does turn out that my dad was able via, you know, his just, you know, phone book kind of thing. Right. Uh, to call someone who, who, who worked at a Jewish foundation here in New York. And that's how I got an in to just begin just doing um, uh, clerical work for them, you know, Xeroxing. Okay, so your experience at the ADL, what was that like? No, it wasn't at the ADL. Um, again, it was another nonprofit. The ADL didn't, didn't come through. It was another uh, Jewish foundation, and I started off there doing clerical work and ended up doing, you know, editing their, their in-house uh, journal kind of thing. So that, that was uh, a job that I had. That was my day job in New York until a couple of years ago. So are you still, were you still involved in making comics at the time? Well, that's the thing. I uh, started, I returned to comics in the midst of that, maybe in 2006 or so. And then I just, I found it to be a, an exhilarating um, a sort of uh, means of self-expression and commentary. So I, I right. continue with it. So. so where did you start publishing then? Was it th- then you were publishing at the forward or where no. else were you? Um, originally it was Juicy, which was this. Oh, I uh, remember Juicy. <laughs> do you? I, I do I remember. Oh, okay. So then there you go. It was this. Um, and that's startup. spelled J-E-W-C-Y. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of this sort of like, almost like had a bit of a, a sort of, again, irreverence, almost punk aesthetic-y kind yeah. of, uh, kind of energy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of classic. That's a great yeah. word. And so they they had they had room for me, uh, you know, freelance on a freelance basis. So that was that was nice. And I published some of my earliest work there, including that's probably where current. I first saw your work. Now come yeah. to think of it, I didn't. Israel Man and Diaspora Boy, I think, originally published there. The Incredible Hulk, I think, was there originally. You know, that was nice. And then and then eventually, I I was able to get into the forward. Nice. Yeah. And the forward, of course, is sort of was had, I guess, a certain cachet in this sort of they'd been publishing not only uh, Jewish writer, Jewish American writers, but also comics at the time, too, for a few decades. Yeah, they uh, published, you know, some of the greats, Ben Catcher. That's right. Art Spiegelman. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The forward. (laughs) So that's a nice uh, lineage to be part of. Yes, it is. And and, and I'd want to for a while. But the um, I'm not really sure, like, what the reason was. I think. Uh, the person who eventually started Tablet was the um, arts editor at the time, and mm-hmm. she kept humoring me whenever I kept uh, submitting stuff. You know, you can, in retrospect, you can sort of understand that it wasn't a good fit. And only um, once she left, and there was this sort of in between uh, sort of instability zone, was I able to sort of, um, you know, find a way to get, get my stuff in there. Initially, it, someone there asked me to write a book review. And I said, can I actually draw a book review? And then that's what led to other stuff. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. And the, for those of you who don't know, The Forward has a very strong progressive heritage here in New York. It's been publishing for over a, a century. And nowadays, it's a little different. It's veered off maybe part of that mission, at least at least what people consider that mission. But, you know, it has really helped the careers of a lot of writers in, mm-hmm. in sort of like entering the publishing world. So I just want to give that context for people who may not 
don't know that because forward yeah. has a big presence in New York, but I don't know how much it has outside of New York. Well, sometimes. yeah, I think we should also say that forward was a Yiddish newspaper a hundred years correct. ago yep. and it was an institution and it was, it was one of the primary vehicles by which uh, Jewish immigrants in America would acclimate to American society uh, via like the Binzel brief column and, and other sort of, um, you know, pieces in the forward or columns in the forward. And then it was re- renewed as an English language paper in, I think, 1990 with a neoconservative bent originally, but then it became uh, less so, and, and again, with its progressive roots. But then things, you know, just started tumbling, and, um, you know, now it's not even a newspaper. It's uh, online only, and uh, hey, it's done Online's some stuff. not so bad. <laughs> I'm just saying, in contrast to... Yes. seems to be a lot more opinion than there used to be in the in the forward, but yeah. that, that's just neither here nor there. Well, okay. I think there, there, there's a lot of clickbait going on now and a lot right. of pieces to rile people up uh, for right. for that purpose. Right. And so, okay, so now you're in New York. You're, you're doing comics again. How did you know that this was your calling? Comics was your calling. How were you supporting yourself? Where, where, where were, what were you gravitating towards? Did you see yourself as part of a tradition? Oh, I absolutely, the last part I can answer. I mean, I don't understand the other questions. I mean, supporting <laughs> myself, I was, I still the day job. But uh, the tradition, yes, I definitely saw myself as part of a tradition. From the what Yiddish. was that tradition? Well, the, the tradition was both the Yiddish comics in terms of Jewish communal, because uh, again, these were in the forward. My, my comics in the forward were Jewish communal criticism, self-criticism, etc. And so the Yiddish antecedents were were uh, quite inspiring, as well as you know the mid-century Yiddish comics known as Mad, <laughs> the mm-hmm. Mad comics, which you consider very important. Which I, I I agree with you. I think they're incredibly important. Yes, yes. So do you want to talk about why? Because you know I say this a lot, but they they held a funhouse mirror up to the sacred icons of American culture, right. and also from a Jewish perspective, it was made by you know children of immigrants who were refused to let go of Yiddish, and they would you know in the first issue they have a the they have a, a story called Ganifs, which is Yiddish for you know crooks thieves, and um, they they threw in Yiddish throughout, and also just like the way it was drawn, you know Bill Elder, Harvey Kurtzman, they 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 were packing the panels with with such. So much, so many figures, and so many little details and little asides that it became like you're you're sort of like you know eavesdropping on um, on a family in a tenement, basically. You know? mm. Okay. I mean, so now, obviously, yes. Yeah. No, no, make, I loved it. I, okay. I actually wanted to hear you describe it because, I mean, I think I think it really helps us also understand why you see it so important as part of this lineage. Right? Yes, yes. I think that's why. Okay. And also, I mean, they they, they were politically. Um, Pretty, pretty bold as well mm-hmm. in terms of anti-McCarthyism at the time. And had such a wide appeal. And anti-racism. Yeah, um, and had yeah. such a wide appeal in, in kind of a, not necessarily the demographics you expected to be reading anti-racism comics. Yes, you know what I yes. mean? Which is really and interesting. Anti-corp- anti-corporate as well. Right. I mean, mocking Walt Disney just right. mercilessly. You know, right, and, right. Yeah, so that kind of thing. Okay, so now some of the other part of this lineage that you see yourself part of, you know, um, after Mad, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the other sort of artists that you feel an affinity towards? In general? Like, yeah. Uh, we, yeah. That you see like, direct precedence in your work or you, you think about, I mean, whether it's Art Spiegelman or like others. Yes. Well, Art Spiegelman for sure. But, you know, outside of the, um, the American um, milieu. So, you know, Weimar, uh, mm-hmm. Germany, um, artists, uh, Gross, Dix, you know, the ones who were, or many of whom were... Um, ostracized and and made illegal you know via the the degenerate name uh you know so so i mean that alone is inspiring but anti-fascist art in general okay so now fast forward 
What led to the creation of Diaspora Boy as a publication? Well, I mean, I think a number of factors, you know, led to it, in- including the ADL telling the forward that um, the, that I mustn't be published there anymore, and and losing Ooh, juicy. Okay, so let's hear this. Well, one. I mean, it's in it's in Diaspora yep, Boy too. Yep. So, but I want to I want people to hear it. People that don't oh, know your work. Oh, so okay. this is introducing you to a whole new group of right. people. Well, basically, um, I, I um, made fun of Abe Foxman one too many times, and I had I drew him as an anti-Semite who was, it's actually relevant today, who was furious at Jews who, critical of Israel, who, who didn't consider Israel part of their identity, and he, he called them filthy Jews, you know. I was like subverting and, and sort of uh, inverting the, the classic uh, definitions that we uh, that we assume about anti-Semitism. And I was saying, this guy's an anti-Semite because he despises a sizable percentage of American Jews. A- as a result, he told the people in the ADL not to speak to forward reporters, and they pulled their ads. Wow. And so the, I, the, I didn't have a clean break because the forward, um, I was told, didn't want to have a paper trail of, you know, um, cowtowing sure. to uh, no, Foxman. No, but. no, no one's going to write a postcard and say, please stop <laughs> Publishing. Yes, but I was told uh, I was told via other people there that I should stop sending in pitches, and and they they did publish me here and there over the course of the next few months, but it, the the sign was clear and it was over. And I'm trying to think, you know, uh, this is like post forward pre pre uh, Trump, and I wanted to sort of put together the works that I had been working on for the past the previous 10 years and and diaspora boy made it sort of it, it gave it, it gave a totality to all the work because it, it brought it together via the um the initial mockery of uh, mockery you know disdain for diaspora jews which is endemic to zionist culture so what did that feel like, Ellie? I mean, I can't imagine forward was probably part of your life growing up. I mean, you know, there, there are all these like, you know, renowned cartoonists that have been part of it, the publication. What did that feel like? I mean, I mean, that seems like a pretty s- strong rejection. Oh, yeah, it was devastating at the time. But, you know, the good thing was everyone with a moral center and comedic sensibility was on my side. And so I definitely didn't feel like, you know, I was being thrown out from okay. a community that, because I mean, the people that the community was catering to were, were not, you know, not for me anyway. So, you know, I, I had defenders often, they were silent defenders, but they, you know. Um, mm, that, as they often are. <laughs> yes, of course. They all wanted to keep their jobs when they were at the forward. And um, Same thing happens yeah. here. It's like, we'll say something really strong and it's like people in the back, oh, I'm so glad you're saying it. I was like, could you say that in public? But of course no one does. Yeah, but, but um, I, uh, I don't actually remember the, um, the emotions at the time so well now. Um, it's a very hot room right now. So <laughs> it'll, I'll, get, I'll get really overheated if I try and um, relive it. But, no um, I, but I, So it's still, it, still a lot of strong feelings. Yeah, but I'm, no, actually, the, the, I don't really have strong feelings now. Got it. I, I, I would have to dig them up again, basically. Gotcha. But, I, gotcha. but I know for a fact that I was not in a good way when, when it ended. And, um, you know, it's like, you know, the, the um, what do you call it? Alcatraz scene, the guy, he's not allowed to paint anymore, so he chops off his own hand, right? I mean, it, it <laughs> Okay. I, I, no, I, did, I, wasn't, I wasn't considering doing that, but it was like, it was like removing the, right. the means of self-expression right. was really, uh, it felt cataclysmic at the So time. what year was that, that that happened? Was it 2016? No, no. no it, it must, I, I need to look. Uh, okay, okay. I think it was like... Um, 2013, okay. uh, the end of 2013, 
and then I had a couple more comics printed in 2014, and so, you okay. know. So it was around that time. Yeah. So now, what did you do after that? Like, what what did that push you to do? You know, honestly, I would need to go back and look at um, okay. my work. Um, okay. But, I, but at, the, at some point in there, I was working on memoir comics, and I think I wanted to do more memoir comics at the time. But um, I don't know if that was particularly within that chronology, you know? Okay. So after you stopped publishing with the forward, you know, I'm going to rewrite history and say you left the forward. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, so what did you start doing then? I mean, for some, for some creative people, you, you think that kind of rejection can really play with your head a little bit, right? What did you end up doing? I, well, I actually, I, w- I was pitching um, my same kind of comics elsewhere, you know? So I was doing some stuff sometimes for The Nation, sometimes for The New Republic, Gawker, you know, whoever would publish me, basically. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to, you know, uh, accumulate a steady stream of freelance gigs, I guess, you know. So then, how were you sustaining yourself? I mean, you were doing day jobs still? Yeah, still a day job. Okay, uh, what kind I, of day I, jobs? Do you mind sharing? Well, um, again, it was the same job. It was a Jewish oh. foundation. Okay. I was, I was working at a Jewish foundation. So you're doing clerical work mostly. No, no. I, I Again, I, I, I started clerical work. Okay. But then Ooh, when okay. I, I'm I, glad you corrected me. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry, I don't mean to. Um, I don't mind. Yeah, basically, uh, I started doing clerical work, but then they needed somebody who could, you know, write and edit. And so I was editing their in-house journal, and I was doing that for quite a while until, I think, two years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Ooh, that recent. Yeah. And so I, you know, it it was a very secure thing to have in New York. You know, I had health insurance. I was able to save some money during it Mm -hmm. while also drawing comics. And for whatever reason, I was drawing comics that were extremely critical of Jewish communal stuff and never got fired for it. I, I, I really lucked out in that regard. So. so what were the people around you? I mean, people go, you went to Jewish summer camp with, I mean, school, your family. What were they saying about your comics? I mean, how, because, you know, sometimes our families and the people's closest, people closest to us can sometimes be our fiercest critics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't really hang out with people I went to Camp Ramah in, in gotcha. you know, when I was uh, 12 so or 10. So um, my milieu in New York, uh, it, it happened to be, you know, some of the people were, you know, Jewish people who's, who had similar upbringings as me, you know, and they loved the work. I mean, and I was actually doing it um, partly for my small circle of friends at the time, you know, the circle of friends of this uh, background. I would send them scripts. I would send them ideas. We, You know, like now I do all my comics. I just basically... I'm I'm in a in this cocoon. I just like draw it and then I throw it out there, and I really love that. But back then, I was um, it was really a bit symbiotic with with my friends at the time, and I would run scripts by them, run ideas by them, and a lot of them were also working in Jewish communal institutions, and so and they're also like me, bit uh, not happy with the state of <laughs> Jewish communal institutions, you know? <laughs> totally. So uh, so it was a very nice uh, period. I, I don't know what's going on now in terms of younger people working in the Jewish world. I mean, because the Jewish world hasn't changed. It's only become more, in fact, it's, it's probably gotten um, worse in some regard, you know, because back when I was doing it, this is like, you know, 2007, 2008, and then a few years after, there was a huge push in the Jewish community for, you know, the the, the next big thing that will captivate the American Jewish youth, you know, right. it always had to be, you know, it, it couldn't be anti-Zionist, whether or not it was, you know, focused on Israel, it's another matter. And so those things were often a source of parody for me and my friends. Uh, I don't even know, like, 
these days, they don't seem to be that, um, unless I'm just totally out of it, which is also possible. Um, but I don't really think there are that many of those initiatives anymore. They, they seem to be increasingly driven by Israel stuff. But, but maybe, again, it's just what I'm seeing from Yeah, outside. it's possible. The other thing is I do think there is an element of like those conversations are being included in other organizations in a way. Perhaps, I don't know. Is, do you think that's part of it? What do you mean? Like they, a lot of the they different- They co-opted the criticism? No, I don't think co-opted. That's not what I mean. I mean, in terms of, um, you know, like maybe when you're talking about these different initiatives, like in a lot of the progressive spaces, I mean, there are always Jewish organizers or like they're talking about different topics that might be of interest to young Jewish progressives or something. I'm just saying like maybe they, they've sort of just, they're not necessarily independent organizations anymore. I'm right. just wondering if that's but the no, case. But no, I honestly think that there was a lot of money from mega funders Got in it. the early aughts and mid aughts in reaction to population studies saying that intermarriage oh, was on right. the rise. There and they are. were throwing money at anything that they thought would appeal to younger Jews to stay within the Jewish community. That was really it. I just don't know if that money is being thrown uh, anymore because these mega funders wanted, you know, ROI, you know, return on right, investment. Right. And they want to know that there are, there are uptick in, gotcha. in, in marriages, et cetera, like that. And I was making fun of that in my comics for the forward, which is great. I don't know if I see what they might have just give, they might have lost attention. They might have given up. They uh, so so they're not getting the ROI, so they've moved on to something else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, seriously, I think that's literally it. But there might be other factors as well. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so now let's fast forward slightly to the Trump era. Mm. I mean, I say that because I think in many ways it propelled you into the mainstream in a way that you're probably not expecting. Mm. You were, you, I mean, the Trump administration in so many ways was a Venn diagram of all the evils in the world times all the, you know, I don't know what. I mean, for, for many reasons, there were so many issues that came up around the Trump administration. And those of us who were critical of it saw it very much of sort of this, uh, I don't know if some negative issues can be intersectional, but I mean, he, the, the Trump administration was the intersectional version right. of whatever that was. Yeah. So yeah. what was your first reactions? How did the Trump administration evolve for you? And, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Well, you know, I, I just, I had actually wanted, I think, uh, to move beyond uh, political comics. I don't want to say beyond, but away from political right. comics. I felt that I had said you know, what I wanted to say about Jewish communal and Zionist uh, issues and themes, and I wanted to explore other areas. And I didn't think Trump would win. I was drawing a couple comics prior to the election, mocking him because, you know, it was, it, it was uh, you know, the dominant American cultural item, and it, was, it, it, it drew me to it. But I didn't think he would win. And when he did win, I did consider it a catastrophe. I know other people would, you know, be uh, more cynical about it and say, oh, it's, it's actually wasn't much of a divergence from American history at all. But I mean, you know, you, you can, both things can be true. You know, he can embody uh, American historical forces and also be a divergent uh, figure. Yeah. That's right. But, um, and so that, that drew me back into political comics, which I hadn't really planned on doing. And, and also, um, you know, clearly different from my Jewish work, because just stylistically, the Jewish work for the forward especially was broadsheet format. You know, a large uh, 12 or 15 panel comic that often is like an allegory or this, you know, um, just this fictional universe that's what I love doing. But um, what, because of the news cycle and because of the, the visceral impact of what was happening, I preferred doing single panels, which I had actually 
previously considered to be a dead genre. Hmm. Um, you know, just like reacting to or you know illustrating the news. Just like I, I oh. generally hate the, oh, that artists. Thing. Artists love to call something dead and then just oh, revitalize oh, really? it, right? <laughs> but it, it wasn't like deliberate. It was sort of like it was the only. It, it was the best means of expression of the uh, of the outrage. So, what was the first time that you really were like, okay? I need to draw this and get it out into the world, you know, whether it's through Twitter or something else. When was the first time that your rage was so intense that you were like, this needs to get out in the world? And then the first time you got this kind of vitriol that unfortunately we've seen. Under Trump? Under Trump, yes. I would need to look at my... There, I mean, I so nothing memorable? Nothing. I mean, it's all right. It doesn't have to no, be the very first, but was there anything so memorable or has it just been a barrage? That's why you can't no, remember. It, it, it just so much. I mean, we each of them it. might be that. I mean, I think after the Pittsburgh massacre, oh, right. um, drawing right. Trump with a assault rifle saying that Democrats need to fix their anti-Semitism problem. I mean, that is an example, but it's not the earliest one because right. th- that was. But let's talk yeah. about that one, maybe, because that was such a hot button topic right. um, that you took on. I mean. That moment, of course, for a lot of people who remember um, the the shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue, mm. uh, where you know a, a far right extremist went in and killed a number of uh, Jewish Americans mm-hmm. in the synagogue. Now, what was the response to that? Like, because you've been very vocal about the the response of the Jewish American community uh, around this. Can you talk a little bit about that? And what was it about that that became such a flashpoint for you? Well. <laughs> You know, it's 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 a large issue, and it's actually. Um, I mean, you know, my feeling now is that the American Jewish community, the in, the infrastructure, and the communal leadership is an Israel advocacy community, and it is. I mean, there are exceptions. You know, the Federation doing work with uh, seniors, for instance, but in in large part, proof of this was when Trump became president. Every single Jewish institution should have, you know, been absolutely, you know, melting down. Uh, and, and uh, marshalling all resources uh, to combat what was happening. And instead, a minority were doing that. And other, you know, s- certain organizations, like a, minor- a small component of their organization was, you know, working against Trump. But by and large, it was, you know, let's wait and see. You know, he's good to Israel. The same communal leadership that had embraced and celebrated the vicious, uh, murderous prime minister of Israel for a full decade what, what kind of moral position were they in? And, you know, they'd already shown their hand. And so, you know, after Pittsburgh, what was probably most nauseating was that Israel sent over a bunch of ministers, including Naftali Bennett, who's, I guess, the next prime minister over there, both downplaying American anti-Semitism on Trump, um, white supremacist anti-Semitism, and basically def- defending Trump. You know, Naftali Bennett actually <laughs> downplayed numbers of rise of anti-Semitism. He's, he's like, oh, that doesn't mean anything. In, in the immediate aftermath of Pittsburgh, you know, and whenever they, they will defend Trump, they'll say he can't be uh, an anti-Semite. Well, they say because of his, you know, uh, daughter, son-in-law, grandchildren, and also because of Israel. They, they always uh, bring up, you know, destroying the Iran deal and moving the embassy to Jerusalem as if that shows that he that he is not an anti-Semite. You know? Right. When we have the biggest anti-Semites or some of the biggest anti-Semites in America are the biggest Zionists in America. Hmm. Okay, so let's talk about that, because I think for a lot of people, their heads are probably exploding because they don't get the difference between Zionism and Jewishness, and, you know, at least for, for some people. Hmm. Now, why, why do you feel it's important to call out Zionism? 
that's like a very uh, open question. It is um, an open question. And yeah, that, that way you can answer it any way you want, honestly, because I want you to just sort of have the, you know, have the ability to sort of answer it the way you think is appropriate, right. knowing that a lot of people may not be very well versed on what Zionism actually is. Okay, well, I just want to, you know, clarify when I said some of the biggest anti-Semites, I'm referring mm -hmm. to um, evangelical Zionists. Absolutely. And that's um, a good clarification to be made. Because yeah, yeah. Zionism in America started mostly as a Christian Zionism. Oh, I don't or know if it started, but right now it is right. uh, numerically, I think both in terms of physical numbers, but also in terms of fundraising, mm -hmm. you know, Kufi, uh, Kufi, however they pronounce it, uh, Christians United for Israel is probably the most... Um, the, the largest uh, Israel advocacy uh, organization in the world mm -hmm. outside of Israel. And it's an extremist Christian organization that is, they think, planting the seeds for... The end times. The end times, yeah. And so you can be sounds a... Sounds like a fun bunch, right? <laughs> you're, like, you're planning yeah. for the end times. That sounds fun. Well, the head of Kufi you know, said that Hitler was a hunter and God sent him. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay. And then he tried to clarify and all that. They always try to clarify. Right. Um, but, um, but, you know... You know, you can be a, a vicious anti-Semite and a Zionist, you know. Sure. And, you know, when I mentioned earlier, the Israeli flags in our, in, our, in our synagogues, I mean, the American Jewish community has for decades conflated Jewishness with Israel, with Zionism, while also rightfully saying that you cannot conflate the two to the outside world when they try and blame American Jews, diaspora Jews, for what Israel does. But we can't have it both ways. Right. And so... So during this time, I mean, around the Pittsburgh shooting, others, you started entering mainstream media conversations. You know, you, I mean, Meghan McCain was kind right. of going after you. There were a number of other people. Barry Weiss has been right. very vocal, you know, the, who I don't know if everyone's going to know who Barry Weiss is. But, you know, just as sort of an explanation, it was uh, uh, an opinion editor, opinion writer. Mm -hmm. Would that be accurate? And who's who's now sort of become part of this Substack Arati um, and trying to kind of create sort of their own name after being let go at the New York Times. And mm -hmm. anyway, complicated story. But now, why do you think that they focused on you? Do you know? Like, because it's not like you were the only critic, right, of that. Why was it that they felt like there was a certain political, frankly, maybe... They were being political opportunists, but why would they focus on you and your images? I mean, I don't. I can't. I can't speak for them. Come on, I, you've thought no, about no, this. No, 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 no. I have no. I'm, I, I draw what I want to draw. I'm not going to try and okay. analyze why they're coming after me. But I will say, Meghan McCain. I drew her, and so it's not like she's coming at me out of the blue. I'm, right. I don't want to pretend that I'm some kind of you of know uh, you know uh, blameless. Uh, again, I don't deserve blame either. But <laughs> that, that I am totally you know sitting on an island somewhere, and then she comes over in an sure. airplane and and starts but hitting me. But you know, comic artists will draw a lot of people. Not everyone's right. coming after you. Right. Well, I mean, you know, we, we have shifted the definition of Judaism in America, where now to be a Jew means to be an evangelical Christian, and to be an anti-Semite means to criticize Israel or evangelical Christians. And I don't know if Meghan McCain is an evangelical, but she, she is a Christian Zionist. And criticizing her meant, and, and also mocking her for exploiting Jewish suffering for her Zionist ends, means that I was engaging in anti-Semitism. That was the sort of paradox of it all. So I can't speak to her motives, but... When she said it was the most anti-Semitic thing she'd ever seen, she was revealing a lot about her entire movement. Which I couldn't believe she said that. You know, it's because it's like, you're like, you're like, really? Out of all the things you've ever seen, yeah. is yeah. this comic about yeah. you that's making fun of you? Come yeah. on. Yeah. Oh, it's great. It was, it was, it was 
one of those rare examples of the uh, repercussions of the comic not only proving the comic but taking the comic into a, into a new dimension which i like so what do you do with the fact like now so one of the things that you've been doing for a while now but i think more recently it feels like you've been doing it more is you don't even make up lines anymore you just sort of right. get quotes from the transcripts right of what these people are saying yeah and then add illustrations essentially or add drawings and artworks yeah. to accompany them yeah i don't always do that often i start off with a satirical quote but then as I'm drawing, they come out with something even more offensive than what I've, what I've put into their mouths. It's like, well, then I can't, you can't satirize reality when reality is so obscene. And so I'm just going to take their words. And put so, so what is that about? Because, you know, we have like gone through the looking glass a little bit. Like, I feel like even in, you know, it's not just in this, but in so many things where reality somehow surpasses the fiction, you know. And so now how... How are you kind of grappling with that? You know, and do you find it more freeing as an artist to be able to do? Do you find it more restrictive? I'd love to hear a little bit of that. Wait, do I find what more restrictive? Just this sort of looking glass we've walked into, right? Where like you're these characters, I mean, you'll often like there'll be a quote that comes out about Abe Foxman and you'll like, you know, bring up one of the old comics, which right. sounds almost like exactly what he said. And yeah. I'm like, I don't know. Is this a real quote? Is it not anymore? I'm not even yeah. sure. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. That happens. You well, know? yeah, it, it can be challenging when reality has outpaced satire, but it can also it can also open new vistas for satire, both of the, you know, uh, mimeographed variety, just like, you know, copy-pasting what they said, or of the grotesquery variety, which I've also, you know, engaged in in the past few years. And so, um, it just, you know, there are just new new areas of satire to sort of uh, explore when these people are such, you know, over-the-top venal buffoons. So now let's talk a little bit about your artistic style. Okay. I'd love to hear about that. So now, who do you think are the direct influences in your style? Well, I mentioned uh, Basil Wolverton. He he did stuff for um, Mad and uh, and also Plop, from, which I learned about him when I was little. Also, uh, Will Elder for sure. There's so many EC artists, uh, not only from Mad, but also the the shock suspense stories that I and crime suspense stories that I used to love in reprint editions when I was little, and also as an adult. You know, everyone from uh, Johnny Craig to Jack Kamen. I mean, I just like list you know these names as I just remember you know. Uh, Ingalls, you know, mm -hmm. Graham Ingalls, just like remembering their signatures as I, you know, coast through my memory here. So I think a lot of their black and white artwork was scintillating for me. But, um, you know, I, I would take it to a like sort of different direction with the grotesqueries. Also, of course, Charles Burns in the 1980s and 90s, his work was also influenced by both the um, the pulpy horror comics of the 50s, but also like romance comics as well of the same era. And, you know, he would take it into a new direction. And so I think he was also an influence in terms of ways to sort of take the original pulpy material and move it to a different direction. Or, you know, maybe the same direction, but a little more extreme. So now there's something that your figures have kind of evolved into a little bit. There's certain fleshiness that right. you're known for in your figures. Right. And that sometimes your critics, you know, kind of see as grotesquerie, but in kind of in, in a, I don't know, they, they seem to have a very weird understanding of images, your critics often. Well, grotesquerie is, I don't think, a, a bad term. I agree. But I think they see it in a very peculiar way and in a very negative way. Like right? body shaming? Is that well, what you mean? Or? I don't know, body shaming. Some people have kind of called it, I mean, some of the people have said anti-Semitic tropes. Oh, and, well, that. Do you know, like that's sort of, you know, yeah. I think 
this is what I mean, like where people who should probably know better because, you know, it is an image, which means it has many interpretations, which means that it, you know, isn't didactic. It is, it is like evil. It is engaging in the history of art, right? Right. Which has a, a big thing. What is it that fleshiness that one, you're interested in, two, that you think drives people crazy? <laughs> it's a hard thing to answer because I, I do think the accusations of anti-Semitism have nothing to do with the fleshiness, have everything to do with the content of the comic. And I've been called that prior to doing grotesqueries. And like my last one is not particularly grotesque and does not show body horror at all. And I was called, it, I was called Der Sturmer for it you know, oh, wow. from a number of people. Um, Do you want to explain what that is for some people? Der Schirmer is is Nazi, um, Joseph Goebbels' Nazi rag uh, filled with anti-Semitic uh, caricature and invective. And people who, who, who say that about my art have like z- less than zero understanding of art history, Jewish history, Yiddish comics. And they probably don't even know Der Sturmer too well either. But they, it's just their reflexive reaction right. in order to stifle all right. criticism of Israel. Right. But in terms of like the actual grotesqueries, Wait, what was the question again about that? Well, I mean, first of all, where is it coming from? Do you know this? Because there's a certain fleshiness, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I, and I would disagree with you at one point. I think some people kind of use that fleshiness as a way of showing, of like, as a way of feeding into this their own images of what anti-Semitism or this this idea of showing the body in this kind of almost. It almost feels like it's melting sometimes, <laughs> right? Yeah. But I mean, I I do think it it did arise largely from Trump himself, Mm. uh, from my drawings of Trump himself. And um, he's a fleshy guy. He's a fleshy guy, but also he, he's a guy who is obsessed with uh, surface, uh, right. what he considers beauty, which is you know often like crassness, but surface shine, veneer, and, yeah, veneer. And I was obviously I was taking that apart, but also I was just showing the you know not to get too full of myself here, but sort of the the ongoing collapse of our institutions of our society via the form of Trump constantly metastasizing into this new form of horrors, you know? Mm. So, so yeah. but why do you think it drives people? I mean, at least the criticism I've seen online, people kind of fixated on, fixate on it a little bit. I actually, they, I get criticism from so many different directions that I didn't think of that one in particular. Okay. Uh, uh, you're saying of the body horror. The body horror, horror, this kind of this fleshiness that I don't, you know, and I, and I don't know, maybe because, I mean, I like what you're saying in that it sort of makes sense, particularly in this certain kind of right wing uh, media scape where image is a lot everything yeah. in a way, right? Like mm-hmm. there is so much in this kind of, I mean, we just have to turn on Fox News and see that like count the number of blonde women, right? right? Do you know this sort of where I feel like those images really hit at something very deep for people, right? right. Who That are image conscious. Mm. Now, what do you see that as part of a trip? Because I feel like you're also part of an artistic tradition with that. Well, just, yeah. I mean, Otto Dix after the First World War was right. drawing uh, body horror of, you know, soldiers and skeletons Mm -hmm. um that had experienced the horrors um right and warmongers and war criminals oh also yes 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 so now i want to talk a little bit more about sort of the end of the trump administration a little bit of what you learned during those years because i think you're a rare artist who engages with these political ideas on a big platform with a big voice that actually gets direct content. Unlike most contemporary artists who like make works in like very, you know, rarefied spaces that like somebody might write a mean review, but honestly no one cares, you mm-hmm. know, outside of a certain circle. Tips. 
for artists that engage at the level you do with politics? If you were to tell, you know, Ellie Valley five years ago, Ellie, the next five years are going to be really interesting. What advice would you give yourself? Yeah, th those kind of questions are hard to, for me to answer. Um, you know, the only well, answer... Well, that's why you ask them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, they're hard to have any words for because it, they're so open-ended and like advice to myself, you know, it's like... Like, would you, would you set up the filters on your social media faster? <laughs> would you have, would you, uh, would you not be on social media so much? Would you be, you know, concentrating more on uh, books? I mean, I don't know what, yeah. what I would love to hear. You sound like a man with no regrets, which I kind of like too. <laughs> okay, so now let's talk a little bit about your work as an artist. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a working artist here in New York. What's it like to make a living doing the comic work you do? Yeah, um, I think it's interesting because I don't really make a living, you know? I, I had the day job, the day job ended. And now I have Patreon, which is my primary source of income. And so people can look up your Patreon to support your work. Right. And, and I appreciate that. Um, but it's not self-sustaining at this point. It's basically Patreon combined with pandemic relief at this point is keeping me going. And aside from that, what I've been planning on doing is I put away money during the 20 years at the day job. I mean, roughly, you know, it's just like so much, I, w I was there for so long and I was putting away money and, and basically now is the time to be spending it. But I mean, it's, it's not sustainable. People are like, oh, wow, you're so successful. I don't know what, what variable they're looking at, but certainly not the ability to uh, sustain myself via the art. You well, know? they're probably looking at the fact that your images are everywhere. You're becoming a household name. Do you know? I mean, that's pretty, for a lot of people, that's, that's a barometer of success. Oh, by the way, I'm not uh, negating that. I'm just saying, it, it doesn't be. feel like it sometimes <laughs> when you got to pay your bills. That's what you're exactly. saying. <laughs> yes. Yes. I don't, I, maybe I don't know how to monetize it. I'm, I'm actually very bad at sending my stuff off to the printer. People are like, oh, can I get a print of this? And I'm like, yes. And it's, I'm, I'm just really bad if you, I don't know if this is part of your area of interest, but um, the, the more um, mundane aspects of being a, a working artist are difficult for me. Like, you know, my website, uh, I had some issues with a website in terms of images per page. And I would need to like do this whole overhaul, and I'm like, fuck it. So I haven't updated my website in two years, you know. Oh. So that kind of thing, which you know, well, whatever. people can follow you on Twitter. Yeah, and I, the Instagram is actually <laughs> the, Instagram. The, the easiest way to you know get a good view of where I've what I've been doing. You know. Okay. So now, how do you? So okay. Now, ha, did the did the book help? Do the books help? No. Uh, no. Very 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 minor. I mean you know very minor like uh almost nothing just very minor right so yeah. which which sounds pretty true of most artists that make books okay so that's mm. a check um so now uh, the patreon's helping out some some of the relief now what are your own kind of like what would be a perfect way to sustain your living perfect way in your in your um, uh, in your ideal world like what would that look like getting some giant grant and getting that grant all the time whenever it runs out. I mean, that's that's the ideal, right? I mean, you know, right? So the grant, well, I mean, everyone's different. Pardon know? me? Everyone's different. Well, so I, I mean, just love to hear what you would, you would uh, consider. You know, ha having um, 
So the foundations that are listening, we you know. No, I, I've I, never I, gotten I any. Looking for a, looking for a grant. I've never I've never gotten any. And, and that surprises me actually. Well, I I, I don't apply for grants. I don't even know Got the it. whole process. It just sounds like enervating. And also from a person who can't even update his website, um, I don't know <laughs> how good I'd be at that. You know, um, I don't I don't apply for like the prizes either. Like someone told me, oh, you should you know try for this one or the Pulitzer or whatever. I look. You need to be associated with a newspaper for those things. So you need to actually have a a media organization at your back, which I don't. One of right. the things I love about what I'm doing now is I don't have to beg editors to um, publish me. That's the other thing. People are like, oh, wow, you're, 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 you're so acclaimed or whatever. Nobody, nobody contacts me and says, I mean, really, really rarely, really rarely. Will someone contact me and say, hey, can you draw for me? We would love to feature your work. No one does. It's like, well, if I'm, if I'm really at the level you're talking about, wh- where are these uh, phone calls? They're literally non-existent or almost non-existent. But I love the absolute total creative freedom of being able to not have to pitch something, pitch a visual, which is so hard to do anyway, mm-hmm. and just put it from my uh, consciousness into the world and then, you know, have it live in the world. Um, but it's not very uh, sustainable. So, which amazes me because, I mean, you've really, you really are part of the everyday conversation for many of us, in, in whether it's in social media or else, elsewhere. Like, I know when something happens, I'll often be looking for your comics. Mm. You know, I wonder what Ali's going to say, you know? Mm. You know, and I think in... Maybe this is why people think you're so successful, right? You sort of have an outsized presence, you know, in terms of the way you might feel how successful you are. But in reality, it's I think you're part of the visual lexicon and the visual culture that we see daily. Right. And by the way, it's a very capitalist thing to associate one's success with one's uh, monetary income, obviously. But on the other hand, you have to eat and you have to, um, you know, um, live. And so... I mean, it's not like you're saying, I want to make a million. You're just like, I want to be able to pay my bills. So I don't think that's so capitalist, really. (laughs) So so what I want to say about Patreon is um, I really work hard on on the essays that I put in there. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if anyone reads them even. And it's kind of like frustrating. I'm like giving all these intricate, backstories and these images from my and history. Sometimes, and sometimes images that you're still working on. Yes, works yes. in progress as yep. well. And and I just can't, because uh, Patreon doesn't give you a way to discern. Cause it's, it's actually a really broken interface, uh, right. we can say. So I don't know how many people are looking at it. They get it by email if they're only looking at it via email. But I, I mean, like, just gauging by like who like likes it or something it's just like three or four per post and so i just think that people aren't really looking at them and they're giving me the patreon funds just to support me which is very nice but it's it's um it's just a little frustrating partly because uh my mom the other day she's like can i forward your recent patreon post on the pogroms that comic from last week to my friends for you know for some group that she's doing like to uh talk mm-hmm. about israel today and i'm like yeah she's like when you post it to twitter people click on it and they can't access it unless they become a patreon i'm like yeah that's the you know the hope is they would become a patreon or patron whatever and she's like yeah but people need to read this because it's giving so much background to what is happening that they just aren't aware of and i'm like well yeah but i mean if i do it if i just post it out there as like a blog post then I'm afraid that my current Patreons will be like, well, you know, what am I paying for if he's just giving this out for free? So I don't really know what the solution is to that. And well, I'll say I'm, I'm one of your donors. Thank you. I, I, I give you a little thing, every uh, little fee fee every month. And thank you. I, w- I wouldn't care if you gave it out for free. Do you I read feel, them currently? I do read them. Oh, you do? But I don't get to read every one of them. Okay, it yeah. usually depends on what time of day I get it and if I'm in the midst of so much work. You know what I mean right. or not? Right. No, I mean... 
I appreciate that from your perspective. I just don't know if that is the common perspective. You should um, ask them. I know. Maybe I should. But then it's like no one's going to reply because that's the whole point. <laughs> that's what I'm complaining about. But also, um, here, the other thing that concerns me is we didn't get into this, but, um, but I do have a feeling of sort of having said, you know, I, I made my point, basically, about the Trump era. And this, this whole thing that's happening in Israel and Gaza now has been galvanizing because it's sort of, it's touched me in a way that, you know, drawing theoretically about filibuster reform doesn't touch right. me, okay? And I would like to be working more on, once again, narrative uh, fiction type stuff, uh, you know, art fiction, uh, graphic novel type thing. I don't know how to do that and keep my, my Patreons because the graphic novel project would take probably five years and certainly while I'm doing the actual art of the graphic novel, I can give working updates. But if I'm not going to be as present online or, you know, giving commentary comics every week or two, I don't know if the Patreons will be like, oh, he was on vacation. And so then they'll... I don't think anybody would care. Well, I don't know. That's, that's your perspective. But it's my it, perspective. It, it, is a, it is a concern because um, I, I do notice, like, if I have not posted something in a couple of weeks or something, I do see that the Patreons will go down a bit. So Interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, not always. I mean, sure. You know, well, you know what? Also, sometimes they go down immediately after I post something to Patreon. It's like, <laughs> what did I say? Seriously. It's like, I think they, they forget they're being billed and then they get an alert. Oh, Ellie Valley posted something. Oh, shit. I'm actually paying himself? I think that's what happens. So um, so it's it's a concern, actually. I do feel sort of a pressure there. Mm, uh, that's a, that's an yeah. interesting pressure. So now, do you feel like uh, museums uh, have been welcoming to your art? Do you feel like galleries have? I mean, I'm just curious. Uh, not no. at all? No. no. I mean, I never pitched. I don't know how you pitch a museum or a gallery. But um, I have never heard from any of them. Uh, except well, for maybe, you know, like years ago, like some very like startup places. Like, oh, can we put your stuff up? But that's like. No, but I'm thinking even like with all the political art shows that we're seeing now. Are we? I don't know we're seeing them. But you're not. You're not. No one. No one. Has no one ever has ever approached not, you. No, not a single. That's not a, not a good person. sign. Be, meaning like for the art world, because I mean, you're such part of the visual culture that you think you, it's kind of surprising. Well, I. Uh, you know what can I say? That's that's their prerogative, and and um, I can't speak for them. I have no idea why. Well, I'm a critic, so I can say it. So that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I it does disturb me uh, thinking because it would be nice to at least be in like um, you know Jewish museums, but I I'm getting the impression. Not that I've tried to, you know, sub- I don't know how you even do that, but I mean, n- they never contacted me either. But I, I just assume that, you know, it's all um, based on donors and what they are afraid donors will um, possibly will react to, possibly. And so, or maybe people don't know that you'd be open to that. So maybe now this will you know, this will open up people's minds. Who knows? You know, like also like in terms of academics, um, you know, there's one, maybe one, two or three people in the country who have been, you know, who have reached out to me. Okay. Um, so it's which, starting. No, no, no. When I say that over the course of the past 10 years, you know, okay. there's one in particular in Temple who has been, you know, she's she's invited me to uh, Philadelphia Jewish Museum to, to multiple panels there, actually. And I'm only thinking of that because it's wonderful that she does that. But it's also the fact is she's the only person in the country that does that. I mean, there's also, you know, you know, one person here, one person there who, who will have me like talk to her class or something. But in terms of putting me, you know, among academics or in a, you know, uh, gallery type, you know, institutional uh, framework, I think that's the only person. And so, and I'm, I'm saying Very it not interesting. to, mm, well, I guess I am complaining, but I'm just saying it just like, <laughs> uh, just 
giving you the sort of objective reality of of what it is you know it's like you're talking about galleries and museums there's like literally one person who who will have me talk at the philly jewish museum for instance got it so now how do you see your work evolving like what are some of the ambitious things you'd like to do you haven't been able to do yet well you know i I have this been writing notes for a um a, a narrative which really excites me but it's so funny because you know i get really into it and then something compels me in the news cycle to to draw. Obviously, this um, Israel-Palestine thing for the past month, it's been, a, I think, about a month now, has really uh, taken my attention from other stuff. But So repeatedly, I get into this, and write all these notes, and then I have to get drawn away. And so that's, that's annoying. But I, but I, I want to um, be focused on this. I also uh, want to put out a collection of my Trump-era work and working on something for that as well. Um, but it's been a slow process just because of my own. Um, I'm sure that'll be taught so. at Liberty University. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that I'm sure of. Well, great, Ellie. This was, uh, you know, I think this was a really interesting conversation. I hope it gives people an opportunity to explore your work and get to know what you're working on and uh, hopefully follow you on social media and uh, see what you have to deal with every day. I can't, I can't, I can't imagine how you sort of uh, hmm. deflect all the stuff you deal with. So. I, you know, I, I should say, um, you know, getting getting the remarks that I'm a self-hating Jew and, and capo, all that kind of shit, uh, again for the past three weeks when it had subsided a bit when I was doing more, uh, you know, other work or, or I was getting, you know, stuff from other spheres for a while. It's almost like, you know, an old relative is coming back. And so it's it's very familiar. And <laughs> Your racist it, uncle who shows up. Yeah, at, kind at of, Seder. actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So um, that's been an interesting phenomenon the past the past month or so. It's like, oh, there you are. I, I was wondering where you were. That kind of thing. From like you know hundreds of people. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you you have a, a more light you know thought about that because I know that it can be very um, weighing down for mm-hmm. a lot of people. But you know you seem to have really been able to you know bring in these different aspects uh, and that are that's definitely speaking to people through your work, through your ideas, through your drawing, through your sense of humor, frankly. Um, so. So I, I know I'm not going to be the only one that says that uh, I appreciate that. So thank, thank you. you for allowing us to sort of see the world through your eyes. Thank you. I appreciate your appreciation. Thanks for <laughs> awesome. having me. Awesome. Great. The music this episode is A Mineral Love by Bibio, and it's courtesy Warp Records. I'm Harag Vartanyan, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.